Welcome back to the Spock of the Week archives. I am one of your hosts, JJ, aka the Albert Android. If you're new to the podcast, welcome, and if you're joining us once again, good to see you back. Each week in Season 1 we are bringing you our original YouTube videos in podcast form, so you can listen to us on the go, whenever you like, however you like. Please consider subscribing to us on the platform you are listening to, and if you would like to support our work, please become a patron. You can do this at www patreon.com forward slash Spock of the Week. But whatever you decide to do, we are happy to have you listening to us today. So thank you. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to episode 5 of Spock the Week. In this episode, we will be reviewing, in a whirlwind fashion, the movies of Star Trek, starting with the motion picture, and finishing, finally, with the sixth movie, The Undiscovered Country. We have decided to split this particular podcast version into two parts, this being first part one, and part two will be released next week. Okay guys, um, welcome back for those of you that weren't scared off by the introductions there. Um, we're now going to talk about the movies and uh, where to start, but right at the very beginning. So let's start with the motion picture. Um, now, being the youngest of the group here, um, the motion picture was uh, not something i seen in the early years, but when I grew up I realised what it was and found out what it was, so I watched it. So I'm going to start off with Gregor. Um, has, uh, you did see it first time round, didn't you? Yeah, yes, I, guess, I guess I'm the only one in the room that actually went to the cinema to see it on its original theatrical release. I doubt my dad took me when I was nine years old. Oh. Um, yeah, um, it's a little bit divisive, I think, amongst the fan base, the, the motion picture. I think some fans love it, some don't. Um, I think I'm somewhat indifferent to it. It certainly had a difficult birth because, you know, once the original series was cancelled and went into syndication and began to gather momentum um, and then there was talk of bringing it back Star Trek Phase 2 a TV series and then Star Wars happened and then switched to a movie and then there was all the issues about getting Lennon Nimoy to come back before the intellectual property rights that he'd missed out on but eventually they managed to get him um, so it, it didn't have the easiest of evil of buffs and I don't think the creative process that it went through did the film any favours. Um, the people that do really like the film are, are understand why they like the film, you know, because there is um, a, a really, at the base of it, a really good science fiction story. Mm. You know, Voyager going out and then coming back after being discovered by an alien species, we can speculate all you want to as to whether it's the Borg, it's never dead, <laughs> never, <laughs> yeah. it's never stated it's the Borg, but you know, Voyager coming back and, and the philosophical debate about what it is to be human and creation and stuff like that, there is actually a really good um, science fiction story there. But that story was originally created for the pilot of the TV series, and then they've tried to expand it into a movie. It ended up being the most expensive movie ever made at the time, so they spent an awful lot of money on special effects to try and make Star Wars money back um, from the movie because that was the, the fashion at the time was for these big space opera battles and it 
just doesn't work for me. The overall thing, it just doesn't work. There's a reason why it's called Star Trek the Slow Motion Picture or Star Trek the Motionless Picture. There's too much colour. Yeah, the special effects are great, revolutionary at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Douglas Trum Trumbull done a, done a great job, but there was so much emphasis on the special effects, they forgot the script. Certainly, I know Leonard Nimoy, uh, when you hear certain interviews from him, he hated the script. And they were basically working on the script every single day because they never actually went into the movie with a finished script. Mm -hmm. um, or not even one that just needed a lot of tweaking. They were constantly um, at the script. I mean, it's not. It's not without merits. There are some great scenes in it. There's some, um, as I say, great science fiction stuff to begin with, but it's just not that well executed for me. Mm. Do you think it was a bit sort of rushed through um, to sort of try and get on the back of the coattails of Star Wars, maybe? Because or... um, it was because of the Star Wars films that they decided yeah. to go with the movies, wasn't it? I mean, they thought, oh, well, this is, you know, it's back in fashion a little bit here. Let's. Let's try and, you know, now there's a momentum for, uh, for Star Trek. I, I, think, I think there was a war between the studio, the director and Gene Roddenberry in terms of what they were all looking to get from the movie. Um, Gene Roddenberry obviously wanted to make his mark on it um, by trying, and I think you can see that in the, the foundations of the story. Mm -hmm. You can see Gene Roddenberry's footprint clearly. Um, then you have a director who'd won two Best Director Oscars and also made a science fiction classic earlier in his career with The Day They Have Stood Still. Went, then went on to win Best Director Oscar for West Side Story and subsequently The Sound of Music. So a guy that clearly knew what he was doing and a studio that wanted to make Star Wars money back from the film. I just think that was never going to be a combination that worked. There's too many different sort of... Too, too many goals, too many things wanted from the movie. You know, something, and this goes for TV shows or films. Sometimes when they're trying to appeal to a demograph or a commercial goal, they take their eye off the ball. Because sometimes to achieve all the things that you want, you just need to make it good. Do you think, in retrospect, um, looking back, that it has almost sort of um, cult quality to it in the sense that because it was the first Star Trek film and you know it did have its issues that people like it for that mm. because they love to hate it or they love to they love to sort of pick at it uh, I mean me personally uh, I don't dislike the film um, I do have to push myself through the opening scenes where they, they, uh, they reveal the Enterprise um, although as impressive as that is it does go on a little bit too long for me. Uh, but then again, personally, I think that was a good way of setting up um, the grandeur and the scale of Vija later on in the film. Um, so I don't know whether that was intentional or if it was just accidental, I don't know. Um, but personally, I, I, I don't dislike the film, but you know, I, I understand where people come from when it's a It does, you do, you do need to push through that initial uh, opening to get to the good uh, to the good bits of the film, personally thinking. I'm not sure whether whether because I'm agree. I think this, the storyline is absolutely brilliant. I think that that concept is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's very much up there with Isaac Asimov. It's a wonderful story. It's an interesting one because it, it you you kind of do wonder in later years you think was that the birth of the Borg? Was it the birth of the, the first organic and 
species that, that were taken in by this, this uh, entity. But for me, this, it, I'm not sure if it's the script that's let it down or if it was that they hadn't fight enough, but there was just... I found I watched it and I didn't recognise the characters I'd loved in the original, ep original episodes. Because where was the banter between Bones and Spock that had developed so brilliantly across those three series? You know, the, his his green-blooded, inhuman, all these little barbed comments about him having high blood pressure. It was all gone. I didn't recognise Kirk with the twinkle in his eye that he always had when he was bending. He seemed so... Maybe that was the change that had happened to him because he'd become uh, Admiral Kirk by that point and he had to take control of it. But I, I felt that, that he was missing his... Bit of a bit of a, a, a gleam about him, and that trilogy between the three of them that had developed so brilliantly across the original series was just completely lacking. Although there was an excitement when Spock came on the bridge, and there was a feeling that he had changed because of what had happened to him with the the, the Vulcan Academy, I just didn't recognise any of these people anymore. And, and it, it comes back though in the other films. It's almost like there was this glitch, um, because when we go back into two, three, and four that's those people I recognise. There, there they are. There's yeah. that bond between them and the good humour between them and the, the fun and the banter. And just still felt a little bit stilted. Do you think they sort of maybe abstracted that from uh, the film to emphasise the the sort of the somberness, the, the, the you know, the... the, um, the um, what's the word I'm trying to think of now? Uh, the philosophical element of the storyline do you think it was maybe i don't know i think they just i think they were trying to take themselves too seriously they were trying to be more highbrow about it because when star trek originally aired it was dismissed as being too cerebral mm, and that, certainly that idea is a very cerebral idea and i think they tried to go too highbrow and they missed that bit of the, the, the fun element that's clearly there in the, there's a, a few little bit tweaks in two certainly in three and most definitely in four that takes it to the extreme but it's missing and just just the, those little moments between them because they felt like complete strangers it was like these people have been on a five-year mission together and they bonded so closely and now it seems like they're complete strangers and I don't recognise them as their characters either. I don't recognise those, those the, the, the emotion in them anymore. So that's where it went wrong. And whether that's down to the script writers or down to the, the story itself, I'm not sure, but it didn't yeah. work. It come, it come, that all comes back to the script not being finished. And mm -hmm. not having, you know, not having a fully prepared script before they started filming. Because what happened was they were working on the script all the time and they ended up focusing on plot, 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 and they had nothing about character in it. And you know, you talk about the change in Kirk, etc. I mean, obviously between the end of the original series and the film, we had the novels, but visually to a viewer, that change in character, was that end in the film? I don't think, I don't it think just it seemed, was. Everybody seemed so dry, incredibly dry and incredibly withdrawn from each other compared to what they had been through. I, I mean, I think Spock's opening scene when he walks onto the bridge um, after failing the coroner, and he's basically a dick to everybody, I think it's just like, that's not what I want to see as a Star Trek plan. Well, let's look into that a little bit, uh, a little bit so more. Yeah, the, um, the characters in the film. Um, I mean, you mentioned there's a, you know, there's a di difference to you um, compared to the dynamic they had in the TV series. Um, would it have not um, 
do you think the films they did that deliberately to sort of like um, separate themselves from the opera in space of Star Trek and be more uh, sorry Star Wars and be more Star Trek like Gene Roddenberry originally wanted to be. Could have been where they were aiming for. I mean, certainly they've they've all got a history because we've actually got a gap between. The end of the original series, which was this is cut off in its prime, it didn't end particularly well, and the last episode of it is unspeakable. Um, however, something's happened, and a lot of that has been filled in by novels that were written uh, by numerous people. There's Flag Full of Stars, um, The Lost Years, so we, we get a little bit of background. They've all obviously been somewhere. Bones has actually left Starfleet and been brought back because they, they, he references, Kirk references this rule that they can actually redraft him in because of some special occasion or, you know, because of a different time. And obviously Spock had attempted to enter the Vulcan Academy and become a, a proper Vulcan rather than given up his human side. So maybe there is about that. And obviously Kirk had become an admiral and become a bit more despound, so he's become a bit more authoritative. And I, I just felt that although they'd been apart for that long, when they came back together, would they not have? And it's touched upon a little bit when Spock arrives and he completely sidebars Chekhov, because Chekhov's all, oh, Mr. Spock, and you can see the excitement in him, my old friend, and he's just kind of like blanked him as he walks past on his way to the bridge, and they all kind of like, oh, it's exciting, robots get, and he's just kind of like, nah, I'm not, not he's here. He's just got full Vulcan, the human part. Yeah, but it's, it's a shame there. because that was what made Star Trek good, was that, that ensemble cast, that relationship they had, they were a family who had been thrown together, and yet had become thicker, you know, it was like sometimes water is thicker than blood because they'd been through so much together. And it's a shame that once they'd got back together, they didn't fall back into that same step they'd had before. And like I say, it's picked up again in, in two and certainly in three, that bond is unbreakable. Um, but they all, there's just this certain sternness, and let's not get started on the uniforms because what were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I mean, I loved the original series uniforms. Uh, really good. I, I think that Technical was celebration, let's do red, yellow, yes. blue, um, wow. I mean, I, I love the whole sort of the, now everybody knows, even non-Star Trek fans know what... Uh, red shirt. What a red shirt is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sarah will not be making it to the end of the video, folks. We'll warn you now, spoiler alert. Oh, no, ninja. <laughs> she is wearing the red shirt. Big mistake. Um, but the, I completely agree with you on the uniforms. I mean, it's like... Ooh, what this is just monotone greys and whites uh, pajamas. Um, yeah, space doesn't. It spoils it for me because when you see Scotty for the first time and he's got the uniform on and it's like, ugh, no, it just spoils it. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing I will want to make is, is McCoy. Um, now what a kind of his beard are you? Yes. Perhaps? Oh, funny that. A bit of what? A... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come, I honestly, genuinely love the look. He just, it just suits him. He wears it well. There's not that. I mean, I, I mean, I'm terrible. This, I mean, uh, it's really terrible. But um, 
DeForest Kelly just really wears that beard really well, and I'm like, they should have kept it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I think I prefer him without the beard. But he does, he does, do you agree or disagree that he rocks the beard in that film? He did, he did look like somebody who'd been out in the wilderness and was very angry about being recalled I mean, back into Starfleet. It yeah, did look like he just walked off a one lot film in a, uh, a religious movie and then walked yeah. onto the set of Star Trek, uh, you know, but he, he looks good in it. It's kind of like, it's the Riker debate for me, you know, it's like, with or without, you know, um, I do, I do like him with, um, but yeah, uh, it's, what got me a little bit later on was, um, uh, when Spock was doing the EVA, uh, like, you know, exp- was, you know, exploring and stuff like that, the, you know, getting up to investigate and, mm-hmm. That was the second point in the film where it sort of dr- it dragged a little bit. Yes, this this, this when they invented the the cloud that is yeah. nature and they there was a, I think this spot was a bit of celebrating special effects a bit there, weren't is they? Is this the scene where Spock's got to shoot through an orifice? <laughs> yeah, um, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't uh, <laughs> um, sort of go down that particular Jeffrey Stewart. These are the words that. Um, Spock uses, he has to fire at the right time to get through the orifice. Do you, th- do you think though, I mean, today, I mean, is that just us looking at the film with today's language? What are you talking about? That's what he says. No, but I mean, I, I you, can just, you can just look at your face right there. <laughs> you know what's going through your mind, Gregor Cameron. <laughs> um, but no, I, yeah, that's. And we, we do see a little bit of a rebel side of, um, of Spock in there, you know, because he's basically done that without. Yeah. Well, you know, he's, he's gone against orders, he's gone, you know, he's done is that it, without permission. Is it a rebel side or is it the selfish side? Because when he boarded Enterprise, the only sort of interesting character thing he did with Spock was that he felt this connection to Vija. Mm. And then nothing was going to stop him connecting with Vija, not um, his own safety or indeed the safety of um, the crew or the safety of the Enterprise. And that's a very unspot like, it's very un-Star Trek like, mm. but again I think that comes back to the, the script not working with the characters that they had. Mm. Um, do you know what I think might have happened, and I don't, don't know if this is true, but I wonder if some of the writers that were involved in actually hadn't watched the original series and were just presented with this story for a movie and some background information about the bit. characters. Because if you look at the, well if you look at what happens in Star Trek Two, which was written by Nicholas Mayer, yeah. he had actually watched, he deliberately watched Star Trek and he picked an episode to use as the basis of it. So he had a much better understanding of what had gone before. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is missing, is that everything that had happened before just suddenly seems to have been wiped off the slate. And it's maybe explained by that there is this gap between the end of the original series, five-year mission, which we never actually see the end of because it gets cut short with Turnabout Intruder. Oh. And then we're at the movie and they've all moved on and done different things. I just feel that there's not really that that, that recognition um, and and the fact that if you did come back together and your bond had been that close, it would have just, it, w- it would have grown closer again. And, but can yeah. we talk about the difference in the character development on screen between Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2? 
Well, we are we, we are getting very very close to getting uh, onto Star Trek Two, so we can we can basically you know um, mosey on across to that one, and that'd be a nice little sort of bridge yeah, well, across to it. Yeah, go for it. Well, we've referenced the different we've referenced in the first movie the difference between the characters at the end of the original series and the beginning of the motionless picture. Okay. And some of it will have come from the books. But the motion picture spends about 45-50 minutes of the first 45-50 minutes getting the crew together. And that was, you know, time that could have been spent on the script explaining what the crew had been up to, why they were different now, etc. But they didn't. They used that time with special effects shots, mm-hmm. not story. You contrast that with the opening scene of The Wrath of Khan, where it's the Kobayashi Maru test and it's Kirk's birthday and within five minutes of that movie you know exactly where Kirk is in his life. The picture is painted best. I think the downfall of it was that Star Wars was such a success with the pew 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 and the laser things that they felt they had to do that, they had the budget for it and it's it's a, we, we, we've all been there, you know, we're we're, we're fans of photography, we, we've had Photoshop and see when we got Photoshop and we fell down the whole rabbit hole of, oh, spot colour, that's cool, I can, I can do it, so I should. And sometimes, actually, you shouldn't. Yeah, it's, it's just because it's there, it doesn't mean you have to do it. I yeah. mean, and ultimately, story is way more important than any special effects. I mean, I think, to be honest with you, I mean, uh, just as a closing point on the, the, the first film, um, the, the fact that it sort of takes the time, it takes time, uh, forget about the special effects, but it takes the time to set up the, the characters getting back together, I think is, a, um, is something that's been lost in film and television, because now you watch a film and it's like, boom, and you're not the main story, like, well, hang on a minute, what's, you know, it's a bit too fast, so pacing is an issue that a lot of people, um, a lot of people do sort of comment on these days. So uh, we'll uh, we'll get into um, the second film now, I think, um, and uh, we'll be back in uh, just a few ticks. Yeah, welcome back, guys. Uh, so the second film needs no real introduction, does it? Really, I mean, because let's be honest. I don't think there's a lot of people that can say a bad thing about uh, Rafa Khan, what do you reckon? It, 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 interestingly enough, this has actually come up on Maroon on Seti Alpha 5 as being possibly the number one choice so far, next to one of the variations of the triple episodes. So that's just an interesting factoid for you there, but it, it does seem to be a very firm favourite. So And certainly with me, it's, it's, it's a tough one to pick between two and six, but two is certainly one that I would watch time and time again and still cry at the end. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, I mean, the, the story's good. Um, the acting's good. I mean, uh, Ricardo Montalban, is it? Uh, if I said that right? Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. Oh, don't. <laughs> you send shivers down my spine just saying it like that. So. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the film could have been, and it wasn't, but it could have been terrible. But Ricardo's character, Khan, and the way he played it, and the way he performed and brought it to the screen. Um, the, you know, the fact that they got the original actor back from the original episode, because the, the whole of the premise of this film is based on the original series episode Space Seed, <laughs> which featured the exact same actor. 
um, and links those those two histories together, which is fantastic because it's so far back in Kirk's history, in the whole crew who were present on the Enterprise at the time are, are aware of this. This, you know, for, for them it was just what one event that happened in the whole five-year mission that they had at the time. But the fact that they got that continuity was pretty incredible. I think that's it. I think that's what made it. I mean, it was definitely a save. Um, from the first one, I mean, they 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 really sort of brought brought the Star Trek into the cinematic world with with the second. Um, personally, I love the beginning uh, of the film uh, where Chekhov is with um, I forget the name of the captain now, um, but it's not on the Enterprise. Captain Terrell. The captain Reliant. Terrell. They're on the Reliant, uh, and uh, they they come to uh, set a set Alpha Five. They you know, they're down there, they're looking at and you know, potting around the ship and But they don't them. think it's City Alpha Five. They don't know yeah, they don't. They don't, yeah. yeah. And and this is the, this is what makes it a great introduction and then, you know, they are looking around and he sees the the, the name plaque for the ship uh, and he's going and you just see the cogs turning and he's like and the uh, colour drains and he's like we need to get uh, the hell off this planet yeah we need to sort of turn tail but it's just as they're about to go that's when uh, and it just goes on from there Um, and it's that reveal moment as well where Khan starts to do the whole strip tease type thing where you're thinking who is this what is this and then slowly the mask comes off and they're all kind of I remember the first time I actually did see Wrath of Khan Um, I mean there was um, sort of a young adolescent. I've gone. I was about you know ten or eleven years old when I first saw the Wrath of Khan properly, and I remember the the slug. No. Uh, yeah, I did that. I mean, it's nightmares. Looking back at it now, I mean, you look at the CGI effects on it and stuff like that, and the, the, the you know the graphics. And it's, it's clearly a plastic here. I'll give you that. It's, it's clearly you know it's so cheesy by today's standards, but even so, it still gives me the when that thing goes in there. It's the way that Khan describes it, wrapping around the cerebral cortex, and you're like, oh, this doesn't sound good. This does not sound nice at all. I mean, oh yeah, I mean it's. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film. I mean, Gregor, what do you, uh, what, what do you want? Because you'll have seen this one for the first time as well, I would imagine. Not in the cinema, no. I had to wait for it to come out on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, for the kids out there that don't know what a VHS is, it's like a very, very, very big memory card, OK? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, it was a, a great film. And, you know, going back to where the studio was and the... the the genesis of the Wrath of Khan. Oh, no. see what he did there? Um, you know, the, the original movie had made money, but not the money that they'd hoped for. There was obviously a lot of politicking going on, and Gene Roddenberry um, wasn't that involved in the Wrath of Khan. They brought in Harv Bennett, who'd been a fairly successful TV producer at the time. And um, through a couple of people he knew, he uh, decided to involve Nicholas Meyer, who's now basically Star Trek royalty. Mm. Um, and Nicholas Meyer, I don't think he'd ever, at that particular stage, he hadn't, I think he'd done a couple of TV movies, he'd wrote, written a few novels that were fairly fairly good. I think he'd maybe done one, one prom, but this was sort of his major feature film debut. And uh, he'd never seen Star Trek, so him and Harv Bennett, they watched all the original series and decided that they wanted to find out what happened with Khan. 
um, from the episode Space Seed, they thought that would be a great story to build a film around. Um, and Nicholas Meyer, being the amazing storyteller that he was, coming back to Sarah's point, knew exactly what Star Trek was about. He knew it was about the triumphant Kirk Spock McCoy, you know, the, the, uh, the, the logic, the humanity and uh, the reason. Um, the three of them representing each one of those, those traits. And uh, he built the movie around that. And yeah, what, what a story he put in. Um, and you know, we're, we're blessed these days because when the movie came out in 1982, I didn't see the director's cut. The director's cut's only about three or four minutes longer, but there's a couple of scenes in it that make way more sense to the movie mm-hmm. um, and make it an even better film um, than it already is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's got a bit of everything. It's got character, it's got pathos, it's got adventure in it. It's absolutely brilliant. And the story is all this time as well, because I'll never forget, um, I was quite a collector of movie posters when I was a teenager, and this was one of the ones that I, I, I did buy. And the tagline for the movie was, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Yes. And I just love that. And it, it is, it's that really old story. This, this guy has been marooned on the planet for so many years, and all he has time to do is like plot revenge. He, that, that is, he's dead set. He's lost his wife. So he's now just angry, and Kirk is the focus of his anger, and this is, this is his, you know, he just wants to end Kirk. But isn't the uh, the poster, um, great because isn't the main character on the poster? Isn't it? Isn't that, he's the big poster. And all the he's, all, he's all the, the main crew he is yeah. the, the big the, the middle of the poster and it is and, and his well his physique is also rather pleasing. Okay, and, calm down, yeah, calm down. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you wanna do you wanna do, do you wanna sorry, I, I just uh, I mean, uh, yeah, a bit hot in here again now. Yeah. yeah. Sick bay. <laughs> well I mean, I mean that that was the actor that wasn't a prosthesis, that was the actor's Pecs, they're, they're very, very impressive. I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, yeah he, glad he, you he said, fit. I'm glad you said pecs. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a family show. They were, they were his own bits. Okay. And there he goes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's that, that, that ancient story because there's um, he references it, which is actually a, apparently an Arabian proverb. Khan says there's a Klingon proverb that a, a revenge is a dish best served cold, and this is very cold in space. But it's apparently a, 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 a mixture of the, it's an Arabian proverb that revenge is a dish best served cold because what they're referring to there is the longer it, you are away from it, the more your time you've had to plot. Um, and stew, and he had certainly stewed over it for, for many, many years. So do you, um, I mean, like I say, one thing we can definitely agree on with the Wrath of Khan is that it will be, and I think will forever be, the quintessential Star Trek original series film. Uh, I mean, like I say, everybody has their own opinions, and somebody might be shouting at the screen right now saying, you know, I like this one, or I like that one, and you know what, that's perfectly fine. Um, it's, it's wonderful, and I think also, because it has a little bit, the, the motifs that go through it, and this is where the writing was just wonderful, because the motifs that are laid throughout it, because you have a little bit of the Moby Dick motif, which is basically Khan is Captain Ahab, and Kirk is, is, is Moby Dick. He is the whale that is being chased, and you can see that right in the final scene. You also have the tale of two cities, in that Kirk, who has been the admiral for so long and he's been desperate, and you can see it in the opening scenes where he's, he's bored, he's fed up. 
he wants to be gallivanting around the galaxy. And the theme from that one from Tale of Two Cities is the recall to life. Because that's what, if, you, if you've read the novel, the, the opening of that is the, the chap finding out that his daughter's actually still alive, and suddenly he has a reason to be alive. And in Kirk's case, he finds out his son is still alive, and that recalls him. And he suddenly becomes all action again, because you've seen he's, he's tired, he's bored, he's fed up. And all of a sudden he's kind of like, all kind of like, oh, let's do this, let's do that. You get that old Kirk back, don't we? And, yeah. and you can see, and the, the music also takes that when he's in the Genesis cave and they, they've been kind of lounging around and then Spock comes back and he says, right, we're ready for battle and he just leaps up and it's all back into action. You're like, yes, that's the Kirk, that's it, go at it, boy. Can, yeah, can we just mention the soundtrack both for one and two? Because one was Jerry Goldsmith, I know we've not been glowing about a review of the first movie, but we did get that great, iconic Star Trek theme from Jerry Goldsmith. Mm -hmm. And from The Wrath of Khan, went a completely different way with uh, James Warner. And I thought, yeah, brilliant, brilliant soundtrack to both movies. Well, we can have a little chit-chat chat about the soundtracks a bit later on, uh, yeah. if you like. So, uh, yeah, um, so we'll go nicely on to number three now, I think. Tune in next week where we will continue our journey through the movies of Star Trek with the third movie in the series. See you then. Thank you for listening to Spock a Week. If you like what you are listening to and you would like to continue, please subscribe on the capture of your choice. Also, if you would like to become a Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash Spock Week. We'd be happy for your support, but we're so glad that you're listening to us anyway. Big shout out to all our listeners across the world, from the United States, here in the UK, from Germany, and also from Hungary. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you do continue. See you next week.